If you want to turn in your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 55. We're going to be there for the next few Sundays that I preach. We're going to be going through this verse by verse. And today we're going to be talking about all who thirst. And how many people here, when you go to the mall, and maybe I'm just talking to the guys, but maybe your, your spouse is in shopping and you get to sit on the bench and, and watch them shop, and you go and you people watch. And you watch just various people walking past and you're looking at them and you're like, man, why did you cut your hair like that? Or why do you have that? Why did you pick that like 49 colors in your hair? Or um, maybe they're walking past and they're wearing holy sneakers and really poor clothes, but they're carrying a big Sony television with them as they go through the mall. And you're like, I wonder if that was the right financial decision for that person. Or maybe they're walking past and they have a weird face tattoo or a piercing that most of society would would think that's a little odd. I saw a person that had a, a piercing the other day, and it's not a criticism, you know, you do you. But it was going from their ear to their ne- nose to their lip to the other nose. I mean, sort of the other ear. So it was kind of like going all the way across. And... Yeah, it was kind of a chain all the way across, and I was thinking, gosh, I hope they don't go to a job interview like that. And, you know, maybe, maybe you know, we look at that kind of stuff and we're like, wow, you know, why, why did they make that decision? And actually, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by that kind of thing. I'm a, I'm a people watcher when I go out in public. And I'm also always fascinated by human behavior and why people do the things they do sometimes. And I'm as much self-reflective as I am looking out at other people, too. One of my favorite classes in nursing school, in fact, was psychology. And we take several psychology courses in there dealing with abnormal psychology, child psychology, adult psychology, psychological medications, just all kinds of of psychology classes, and I remember one of the people we studied was a father of modern psychology. His name is Sigmund Freud. He kind of thought that people were also three-part beings, um, just like the Bible does. Although instead of saying body, soul, spirit, he would say id, ego, superego. And he didn't have it all right, but he did have one thing that I always kind of remembered and, uh, and always kind of have in the back of my mind. It's always intrigued me. Freud said that the driving thrust of all behavior and all um, motivations in most people's lives is the avoidance of pain. We simply don't want to be uncomfortable. We simply don't want to experience any pain. And, mo- and many people will go and do drastic things to avoid pain in their life, even if they're destructive in the long run. An extreme example of this that we're seeing right now in western Wisconsin is that most of the illegal drugs out there are laced with fentanyl. We've seen a lot of overdoses lately. A lot of overdoses from everything from methamphetamine to even the marijuana that people are taking is laced with fentanyl. And they're overdosing on the fentanyl and dying. And we've had numerous overdoses that have led to deaths lately. But these are just people, again, they're trying to avoid pain. They're trying to cover something up in their life because there's something wrong emotionally or spiritually or physically. 
It's all about avoiding pain. And before we look, just look at down at people that use drugs, people that don't use drugs, we do it differently. Maybe it's the idea of self-improvement. You ever go to the self-help section in a bookstore? It's huge. It's a lot bigger than the theology section. I mean, there's several aisles of, of people saying, you know, do this, do that, live your best life, do all these kind of things. In fact, this is such a profitable uh, business, it made over $48 billion in 2021. $48 billion of people buying this stuff. In fact, you see it even coming into many of the megachurches right now. I listen to a lot of sermons on a weekly basis. Whenever I'm driving around, whenever I'm driving to work or back from work, I'm usually listening to a sermon on the radio. And I see this especially in the, in the huge, huge megachurches, the, the televangelists, some of them. A lot of the pastors are spending more time boosting people's self-esteem than they are preaching the gospel now. Well, the problem is it doesn't save people to boost their self-esteem. It saves people to tell them the truth. So boosting self-esteem doesn't fix that central problem within each one of us. Because despite all this effort to boost people's self-esteem and say, oh, you're okay, even if you want something or, or desire something that's just way beyond the pale of decency, you're okay. That's what we keep telling people. Yet despite all of that, the suicide rate continues to climb. Antidepressant usage is at an all-time high. Mental health conditions continue to plague our country. I don't think I can go through a shift anymore before, without having at least one or two suicidal people coming into the ER. That doesn't mean that they've committed suicide. It just means that they feel that way. And I think a lot of the times when we're diagnosing mental health disorders, its root problem is sin. Either sinful thought patterns, sinful ideas, sinful thoughts, or somebody who has um, swallowed some type of sinful ideology, hook, line, and sink sinker. And sin, when I talk about sin, that's simply separation from God. And doing, thinking, or concentrating on things that don't reflect his nature. Sin is a promise of fulfillment that can never be obtained. Sin tells us, just fill yourself up with me, and you will be satisfied. But what we don't understand about sin is that sin is an acid. As it's pouring into you, trying to, to fill you up, it's actually rotting out the bottom of your spiritual container, and it just keeps leaking out and leaking out and leaking out. And you need more and more of the sin to make you feel whole. Now what does this have to do with Isaiah 55? That's what I want to point out this morning. Humanity was created with a perpetual thirst for something outside themselves. Book of Ecclesiastes says that, that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. He has put something inside them that desires something outside themselves. In fact, it's exactly how we were made to be connected with our Father God at all times. And attempting to quench that thirst apart from our Father God is why humanity has been in such a mess throughout all of recorded history. So today we're going to look at Isaiah 55. We're going to look at God's solution to this problem. 
Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1, says, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy it? Listen to me. Listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. And Father God, I just ask, Father, that this, this time that we take this morning to look in your word will be just like going to a garage, lifting up the hood and looking under there to see if there's anything wrong. I ask, Father, that you use your word this morning to bring us into a much better place with you, a much better relationship with you, and, and help us to have a deeper faith that your word is true and can light the path of our entire life. Father God, we ask this in your name. Amen. Now, these verses were written about 500 years before Jesus was even born. God is giving the prophet Isaiah a glimpse of the gospel that was to come. Because as you read these verses, you can see the entire gospel foretold in three short verses. We're going to break it down this morning because it's not only important to see as far as our salvation, but to see how God has provided a way for us to live an abundant life with him. And the first thing we see is that he gives us a call. And that call is that word come. Father God tells us to come. There are three different tenses of this word in the Hebrew within the first verse. And the first time that it's used, when God says to come, it's an emphatic declaration. In other words, it's a direct order. God is telling us to come. It's not, kind of, it's not like your friend calls you up and says, hey, we're having a get-together. If you feel like coming, come on over on Saturday. We'll have a good time. It's it, more like your boss saying, I want you in my office at 8 o'clock Monday morning. We're going to discuss a possible raise, promotion within the company. Be there. Now, nobody is going to show up to that meeting at 8.30, dressed in a holy T-shirt, pair of sweatpants, no socks, and flip-flops, and say, hey, what do you got going on there, Jim? No, right? You're going to be there 10 minutes early. You're going to be dressed appropriately and ready to, to meet with the boss. And so God is, is using that kind of idea when he's commanding us to come to him. He wants us in his presence. And you might ask, well, why does God want us there? Why is God so emphatic in the Bible about wanting us to come to him? Well, it's the same reason that the engineers of whatever vehicle you're driving, they set a maintenance calendar for your vehicle. You might have an oil change every two or 3,000 miles. You might have tire rotations, bulb replacements, belt replacements, batteries checked. They're all on a calendar determined by the chief engineer within that company to make sure that your vehicle would last a very long time. In fact, my dad would always yell at me when I was younger and had cars because he was an ASE master mechanic. And he said, barring any mistakes at the factory, as long as they built that car right, if people fo just followed the maintenance plans, 
that are in their owner's manual, most garages would go out of business because most cars would just continue to run the way they were designed to if they would just follow the plan. But for some reason, just like many of us with our cars, we don't want to spend the money, the time to maintain them. We do the same thing with our spiritual life and our relationship with Father God. Many times we just don't feel like praying. Definitely don't want to fast. We don't read our owner's manual called the Bible until something sounds off in our life. Until there's a clunk in our spiritual life or a, a wine coming up from under our spiritual hood. Instead, we go to the world. And we try to treat a spiritual problem with a physical solution. Oh, I'm, I, I'm super stressed out. Just let me, let me take that pill or drink that alcohol or, or do something to, to numb that a little bit. But the problem is still there when all that wears off. You know, once I was helping my grandfather fix something on his boat, just a little rowboat and a, and a, with a motor on the back that we used to go fishing in, and there's this bolt that just would not budge. And so he told me, give it a couple taps. Well, I had, all I had was a ratchet in my hand, so as I start smacking it with the ratchet, and he's like, hey, hey, right tool for the right job. If you're going to rap on something, you get a hammer and rap on it, not with the ratchet. But sometimes we kind of do the same thing in our life. We use the wrong tool for the wrong job. How often are we using a wrench when God calls us to use a hammer? How often are we trying to turn a screw with a dime because we don't want to look for a screwdriver? Anybody ever do that? Take a coin out of their pocket to tighten something up? How often do we turn up the radio in the car to block out that weird sound coming from under the hood? Anybody ever do that? That squealing coming from under there because there's a belt going? How often do we suppress the pain in our hearts and soul with food? Or alcohol? Drugs? Or the things of this world? Instead, the Bible tells us we should be going to our Father God who is commanding us commanding us to come to him first because he does not want us to do damage to ourselves using the wrong tools for the wrong job. It's summed up earlier in the book of Isaiah when God himself proclaims that in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. That's Isaiah 30, 15. If you want to triple underline that in your Bible. And repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. How true is that in our life today? In fact, our Father points out something to us that may be a temptation to keep us from coming to Him, and that is the cost. Maybe we're worried about how much this is going to cost us. Maybe it's going to cost us time. Maybe it's going to cost us um, some entertainment that we really enjoy. Maybe it's going to cost us something that we just don't want to give up. We remember the parable of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and says, Good sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him, Obey the commandments. 
paraphrasing it a little bit. The rich one, you really ask, which one? There's 613 commandments in there. Which, which ones am I supposed to obey? Jesus gives them just the three. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. And love your neighbor as yourself. I have a feeling that those are probably the three that the rich young ruler is probably struggling with the most. Rich young ruler replies to all that. He goes, all those I have kept since, the, since I was a youth. But in his heart, you just see, not really written in the words, but just almost implied in the words, his real statement was, but I still feel like I'm lacking something. There's still something missing there. The rich young ruler knew there was something missing in his heart, in his spirit. And it was because of what Jesus said next. In verse 21 of Matthew 19, he said, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And look at the response to that. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He was trusting in the wrong thing using the wrong tool for the wrong problem. And he stayed in his misery. And that's, that's much of our problem. We trust in our wisdom. We trust in the world's solutions to spiritual problems. We covet and hold on to the things of this earth more than the things of God. That is why God gave us the prescription. And repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Unfortunately, sometimes a church can be a roadblock than a help in this area. Depending on which faith, faith system or denomination you ascribe to, many of them tell you to do instead of just to trust, instead of just to exercise faith. Maybe some will say, just pray this prayer, or light this candle, fast, give money, do a spiritual service. All these things are good things. If you first understand that you're not adding anything to your salvation, that was bought and paid for by Jesus on the cross. But God would rather have you be than go and do. He wants to make sure you're not putting the cart before the horse. He wants to make sure you're connected to him and not trusting on these things of the, that we find in the earth. But as Isaiah 30.15 says, we'd rather pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps sometimes rather than trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And that's why God continues in verse 2 where he identifies the problem. And that is human rebellion. I'm going to illustrate this using something that recently happened to me. I recently had my one-year review as a nurse. I've officially been a licensed nurse as of February 1st, so it's coming up. So they gave me my one-year review a little early. It was mostly positive, but I got marked down. Where I got marked down was in the area of asking for help also known as delegation, nursing delegation, and time management. You see, in nursing school, we have a whole class about this, a whole semester class. 
Well, they teach you as an L RN to delegate tasks to other nurses, to LPNs, techs, and aides that are within their scope and skill level so you can concentrate on the quote-unquote higher stuff that they cannot do. And it's actually very common among new nurses. We just want to do it all, but when you're carrying five and six patients, you can't possibly do it all. You have to ask for help. And I'm getting better at it. I admit I'm able to handle the five and six patients during the busy times now. But I think to all, all of us, in some degree, have that kind of unwillingness to ask other people for help. Especially, I think, maybe I don't know if it's the older you are or if it's something that just different people have that, that thing, I'll just do it my way. We all want to be self-sufficient and do it ourselves. And I have a 35 to 40-minute commute to and from work where I think about everything that went right and wrong on the shift on the way home, usually as I'm listening to a sermon. And I was thinking probably a couple months ago, driving up over the hill over there by Northfield, getting ready to get off on the exit. It occurred to me, I just remember exactly when I thought this, it occurred to me that this is exactly the same resistance I had to asking for help was exactly what caused Adam and Eve to fall in the Garden of Eden. You see, they wanted to be like God. Not having to rely on anyone, including him. They saw that the fruit was able to make them wise. They saw that it was able to make them like God. And they trusted in Satan's lives over God's truth. Many times when it comes to our spiritual lives, we do that today. We think that this is something that we can fix instead of following God's command to come to him. But part of our fallen human nature is we want to earn it. And that's why we see the solution in verses 2 and 3, where he says, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Listen to me, listen to me, and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest affairs. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. We sing the song a lot. But one of these days we've got to start believing it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left its crimson stain. But Jesus washed it white as snow. Jesus paid the price already to bring us back into the presence of God. There is nothing we can add to it. There is nothing we can subtract from it. He did it all. And that is why we can go before that throne of grace without having to worry about payment, without having to worry about earning it, without having to worry about doing something to make us righteous. Jesus did it all for us. There are two events in the Bible that show us this, that cement this truth in our souls. And the first is in Matthew 27:51. Jesus had just died and completed the work that God had sent him to do. He said, it is finished. And look what happens right after Jesus exhales his final breath. 
It says, at that moment, the temple was, or the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain in the temple represented the barrier that existed between sinful humanity and a holy God. It was ripped in half, and it said very specifically, from top to bottom. Now, this thing was almost a foot thing, humanly impossible. They could have attached a, a hundred horses on either side with rings and tried to rip it apart. They could not have ripped that apart with any technology they had at that time. And Paul explains to us the significance of this barrier in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14, says that, For he, Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile them both to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. What this is saying is that there is no spiritual separation from God except what you want to put there. I was thinking of the tearing of the temple curtain once when I was driving somewhere, and then it, it broke my heart to think that within hours, some Pharisee was up on the ladder trying to sew it back together. How many times are we trying to sew that thing back together in our lives? And that is what the second thing is. Learn to live according to the Holy Spirit. Learn to live in the freedom that Jesus has already paid for. Allow the Spirit to touch your heart and mind and soul and spirit. Let the Holy Spirit teach you to trust God for your needs, your wants, and your desires. You know, a lot of times we're, think, we're I think, scared about bringing things to prayer, particularly our sin. But you know what? He knows you're doing it already. He already knows. So not bringing it to him is trying to, you're trying to put up a front to God that, that he knows doesn't, isn't real. So bring it to him. Say, God, I am struggling and struggling and struggling with this, and I don't want to do it anymore. Can you please help me with this? Allow that thing that separates you from God, to remain torn in half. Ask Jesus to tear that barrier down once again in your life so that you can learn to thirst after God, so you can learn to quench yourself in His presence, His goodness, His holiness, and His favor. Let all those worries, let all the schemes of the evil one, let them all fall away in the overwhelming presence of God, the Father who loves you.